Metal episode 60. In this episode, I'm going to be covering a vocalist I've been very fond of for years. This is Warrell Dane, most famously the vocalist, vocalist of Nevermore, who were one of my real gateway metal bands. So someone I've been into for, you know, part, probably more than about half my lifetime now. He's got a pretty impressive uh, discography, although purely vocalist and lyricist as far as I know for all these bands. Uh, and kind of a sort of controversial figure in as much as I only know people who love or hate his vocal approach. I know a lot of people who thought couldn't stand Nevermore because of that sort of semi-operatic, very intense tone he had to him. So he's been around for quite a while in the metal scene. Um, born in March 1961, his first real kind of foray into metal, as far as I can find, is with his first band, Serpent's Night. Absolutely ridiculous name. Spelt Serpent's, plural, K-Night. Very, very weird. Uh, <laughs> choice of band name there. These guys are interesting because they, they put out their one and only album, Released from the Crypt, in 1983, and it's very much that kind of crossover where the rise of Thrash was sort of starting to happen, like new wave of British heavy metal influence stuff was kind of coming to its end, but he also had hair metal on it, like like on the rise at the same time and this album sits somewhere in the middle of all that kind of stuff so there's like a lot of short aggressive kind of thrashy heavy metal tracks with like nice flashy guitar solos like a little bit of like randy rhodes influence in some of that like lead guitar playing but warrell dane comes in with to this with his extremely high-pitched hyper falsetto like the highest you'll ever hear him singing on anything really and a lot of that could probably be put down to the fact at this point in time he was either 17 or 18 when recording this album so the like the falsetto he's hitting on it is utterly ridiculous and his vocals unlike when we'll get to like nevermore later on will stay in that super high range for the entirety of the album it's fairly rough and ready like the production of this even for 1983 is pretty raw it has that kind of feeling of like the whole album just feels like it's been recorded slightly far away the mix is just very kind of hard to discern a lot in there but there is a lot of like great riffing and so going on if you've got any time for that kind of proto heavy metal like early years of thrash this there's a lot of that in there the band's image is quite fun it's definitely um somewhere around the new wave of british heavy metal slash like the motley crew slight satanist thing they're like most famous band photo is them all in front of a big stained glass window but with all their like spiked gear and uh leather trousers that it's it's cool for what it is this is certainly music that's going to have massively dated this far on like the the other thing you'll, you'll not really see much beyond this point is doing an album cover where it is literally the band on the front cover in a graveyard one of the most notable things about this album is a very odd choice of cover they uh in the middle of the the album running is a cover of jefferson airplane's white rabbit which actually i think they do kind of well like the first half of the song, they, they didn't do the classic thing of just sticking 
heavy chugging guitars over an old classic rock song. They actually build up the intro in a very similar way. And at this point in time, Borodane had no problem hitting similar high notes to the original. And then the song in like the, they essentially add a new final minute where it goes all heavy metal at the end of it. It's kind of, in many ways, a sacrilegious thing. Like this is like attempting a cover of Freebird. Like you're going to piss off more people than are going to like it. But personally, I actually quite enjoyed this as a cover. What's quite nice as well, um, you can actually get hold of this album no problem now because it's been re-released uh, with a huge collection of bonus material. Like the original album had 11 tracks on it, I believe, and it's been re-released with a further like 25, oh sorry, not 25, further like 15 or so tracks, all kind of demos. Um, also, like I think they did a demo after this album and so on, so you can get the full collection. And it, it's a really interesting point in time. I think many fans of Nevermore will not be able to see any similarity between this band and what Borodain sort of went on to do. Even vocally, you could be forgiven thinking it's a completely different singer. But this does sort of show where the, his next Project Sanctuary came from. Quite quickly after this, Serpent's Night fizzled out. They only lasted a year or so longer. But he, Warden was able to quite quickly jump ship um, and start up new band Sanctuary along with longtime um, co-contributor Jim Shepard on bass guitar. Sanctuary definitely go down more of a kind of a heavier path than um, Serpent's Night. They're definitely in the kind of heavy slash power metal kind of category, but don't think the kind of super cheesy end of that. There's no sort of keyboards or anything here. This is all hefty guitar riffing, but with very kind of clean high-pitched vocals. 
we see a different side of Warbane's actual vocal approach in this, though. While it's still far higher and more falsetto than a lot of what he'd do for Nevermore, it has far more bites than on the previous album. There's a lot more kind of aggression in there, kind of more like vocal fry and harshness to it. And also we get the start of him sort of doing what he would go on to do loads in his career, of just purposely making his life difficult with just like a lot of awkwardly complex lyrics like it's something Warden certainly had a skill for on top of that we just get great guitar solos throughout it's none of the Jeff Loomis stuff the two guitarists in this album are far more traditional heavy metal guitarists it's flashy but it's not hyper technical one uh, actually quite interesting thing about this album is uh, they have a very famous connection on it which is Dave Mustaine produced it and did a couple of guest solos on it. I'm not sure how quite how that connection uh, came about, but yeah, a cool little addendum. I only just noticed uh, getting the CD recently for this. Something that should also be mentioned about sort of Sanctuary, um, Nevermore, and all these bands. Like they were Seattle-based in late '80s, going through the '90s onwards, which is kind of fascinating because they got as big as they did while competing with the rising grunge scene. So, probably not quite so relevant on this album, but we'll be coming up, like, with all the stuff I'm talking about, especially the next two or three, this is exactly when all those, you know, your Nirvana, Soundgardens, etc. were blowing up, and they were still trying to sort of pedal this kind of music that, I guess, like, essentially a little behind the times. Like, this, this certainly isn't thrash metal that was sort of, I know coming towards its kind of zenith in popularity and it very much isn't grunge which is about to take off afterwards and also sort of competing with death metal that's about to kick off after that point you can see why to some people sanctuary are a bit of a footnote but this album refuge denied i think he's one of the strongest world aim was evolved in on his career like there's so many just excellent choruses. It's got a kind of tough, like, brutal edge to it in places. Songs like uh, Die For My Sins are quite reminiscent of that. If you enjoy the first Slayer album, there's quite a lot of that in there, but with a more kind of over-the-top vocal delivery. One thing I don't get on it is they try to make Lightning Strike twice doing the White Rabbit cover again, but they did everything... I said the the last one they did it avoided. They put like a big solo at the start of it. They do like heavy chugging guitars throughout the whole thing. Jeff's, uh, sorry, not Jeff's, uh, Worrell's vocal performance on it, brilliant. But everything else is just a poor choice. It's an interesting uh, tendency though. Um, we'll see this throughout Worrell Dane's career. I'm pretty sure this is his influence on Nevermore and his other projects from then on. If he loved getting a cover into the runtime of an album, which I know is a divisive thing to do with metal. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, it slightly has that air of passing off someone else's writing as your own. But I, I'm sure these were very much homages. And at least with a lot of these Warden covers, he has attempted to completely reimagine the song, which... Is, is a more acceptable form of doing this. Something else I want to mention about this, the cover is brilliant 80s ridiculousness. Um, it features a kind of vampire preacher type character pointing a gun at a giant book of text being held by a robed acolyte with a screaming figure in the foreground. So totally over the top, and along with Sanctuary's ridiculous logo that kind of looks like 
the splash screen of the opening credits to Thundercats or something like that. It, it's <laughs> amazingly of its time, but some brilliant like nostalgia here. And actually, I think unlike, say, Serpent's Night, which is kind of obviously dated horribly at this point, many ways this album holds up as just good still. I, I don't I don't think there's any real dating about it other than this is a style that is less popular these days. Sanctuary released a follow-up to Refuge United, Into the Mirror Black, two years later in 1990, with exactly the same lineup. Into the Mirror Black, pretty similar, uh, like, kind of tonally to uh, Refuge Denied, but there's a few things, like, there's definitely a softening of some of the edges, like, the sound is a touch more commercial. Also, like, lyrically, I think... There's, you can see there might have been a slight influence of the grunge scene here where they've gone a bit more dark and introspective rather than quite so over-the-top and bombastic. We still get those fantastic high Warrell Dane screams throughout. Those vocals are quite a bit more understandable than they were on his previous two albums at this point. Like um, the, the lyrics and vocals are very much front and centre on this album, whereas on previous ones they weren't necessarily the focal point throughout. Still great riffing throughout. Actually, something that's quite noticeable even from the very start of the album is there's more of a use of the bass guitar. Like that sits more clearly clearly in the mix, even introing the album with like, the cool start of uh, the, the single from the album, Future Tense. Um, 
overall, yeah, just another really solid album. Some of the lyrics let it down in places. Uh, songs like Taste Revenge have a bit of an awkward chorus. And Future Tense, although like it's really interesting if you go back and look at Future Tense's video, because it's kind of ahead of its time, but so spectacularly dated. Like The chorus references um, the move from the 80s into the 90s and it's kind of sort of prophetic in pointing out all the things that are politically horrible about the 80s listening to this you know 30 plus years on still horrible about now um but yeah that's like that quite dates it and Warren Bain in this video is probably the best like history of that incredible fringe he used to have certainly a look that's uh that's not aged too well um but yeah like it's it's a great album in many ways. Uh, the cover's an odd choice, like whereas the first one was massively over the top, this one's now a bit understated. But that that's an interesting choice for a band like Sanctuary because they feel like a band that you know you've got Warren leading you, be over the top, be bombastic. You're you're going for this hyper falsetto high stuff, this like true spirit of heavy metal kind of thing. Don't go understated and introspective. Go go bombastic. Go like. Yeah, go for broke with it. But none of this stops it from being a fantastically catchy album built around, like, brilliant choruses, excellent heavy metal riffing. It's just something that you can see why somewhat has got left in the 90s and wouldn't quite have the influence I think some of his latest stuff would go on to have. Although there are those that swear by Sanctuary as being the absolute high point of Oraldane's career and in many ways I can't I can't deny that this this stuff certainly was very very well done so what would what would happen to Sanctuary not long after this album is uh one of the guitarists would left the band and was replaced by founding Nevermore member Jeff Loomis briefly then around 1992 the the band kind of collapsed and Jeff Borrell and Jim would move on to form Nevermore. Now what will the 90s hold? You know, we're on the air. 
So this brings us on to the big part of Warredane's career, Nevermore. They picked up Jeff Loomis, who um, previously had auditioned at the tender age of 18 for Megadeth and got rejected in favour of Marty Friedman um, because of his age and lack of touring experience, which, if we're honest, probably all worked out for the best, really. And uh, Then joined Sanctuary. The guy was already an absolute guitar god. There's a great um, clip on YouTube you can find. It's it just audio of his edition for like some guitar competition when he was like 16, and it's already utterly ridiculous. He he was obviously destined to be this truly brilliant like guitar god that he is today. But yes, yeah, so we get to the point where they put Nevermore together initially with drummer Mark Arrington, who there's something interesting going on where he's on the... So, in 1992, they put out the Utopia demo, which is is pretty cool. You'd still hear, if you get their debut album, there's a couple of tracks from that, like, which never made it to any proper albums. Um, interestingly, one called The System Is Failing, which would later be a Megadeth song. Uh, that, <laughs> that's kind of by the by. But yeah, so... Um, they put out this demo. It's rough as all fuck, but there's some there's some really good stuff in there. A lot of these tracks, like uh, Gardens of Grey, would make it onto the debut album, and even Martricide onto the the follow up EP. But you can kind of start to get the the impression of what they were going from here. This this is a move away from the very eighties metal of stuff like Sanctuary into something a bit new and fresher there's this clear move very early on to massively down tuning the guitars so um jeff loomis is famously a really early adopter of seven string guitars something that will be popularized massively about five years time from this by the rise of new metal but for a real like tech metal guitarist he was one of the the early famous ones to start using them i'm not sure how early in nevermore's um catalog they come in but clearly from this early stuff he was at least writing with an ear towards uh a lot more um low end in the sound they would later team up with drummer van williams although mark arrington shares the drum duties on the debut album nevermore so this album came out 1995 three years after three years after that initial demo um and i'm not quite sure what the lead up to it was but we see this great leap in sound from bands like sanctuary where suddenly things are really heavy in places but then way lighter than sanctuary would ever go it, it, it's the true influence of the prog side of nevermore i think comes out on this album straight away this has always just been a big part of their sound the album opens with the punishing and chugging what tomorrow knows were massive like chorus hook but then like this is what like sort of separates nevermore sound as well as although still a massive catchy chorus warden goes much lower and isn't using entirely like like that falsetto end of his vocals there's a lot of yeah more low-end interesting stuff in there um the next track coal black future is an absolute face melter the solo that opens up the song it just shows off the true potential of why jeff loomis is such a great guitarist but then with sanity assassin this song starts off with like acoustic guitars it's very clean and melodic um 
The only problem with this album is it's very much front-loaded. The first four tracks are just way better than the last four. But there's so many of Nevermore's, which will go on to be like their great ideas on display here. They, we're, we're getting more of World Dane going for the more brave and complex lyrical themes. Like he, the reason I love him so much as a vocalist is he is so incredibly ambitious. At times, like what he attempts will fall flat, but Nevermore is so much more technical than his previous bands. He's having to try and find a space to fit a very complex vocal melody over these massively competing, extremely fast guitar parts. Also, Jim Shepard really finds his bass tone with this band. Like, on uh, Sanctuary Stuff, like both albums, like on the first album, he's barely noticeable. On the second one, he's more in the mix, but the bass hasn't got the nicest sound to it. With this, he, he just gets that low-end, like, real chug to it. He's like a pick bassist, um, so he's always, like, kind of following the guitars and so on. But the, the, the kind of core of a lot of what Nevermore sound would be is the sync-up of that bass and drums being so kind of huge and filling the space giving us like this really heavy groove technically um nevermore never really quite fit into a genre i know uh metal archives has them as something like heavy slash power metal early and then like groove slash progressive metal later but if in all honesty like they have elements of all of that. There is there is some groove metal in there, but it's certainly the more ex hoarder end of that. This isn't this isn't your kind of low rent machine head groove metal. But there's always been prog in their sound. Their songs have always been expansive, even if they're not normally much over the five or six minute mark. There's certainly Warrodane's vocal approach could be kind of pushed towards power metal. But he would still feel like an atypical vocalist in in that genre. And then there's there's stuff in the riffing, like Coldback Future. If it had a different vocalist on it, would happily be a death metal song. So they're quite. They've always been quite a unique band. And really, I struggle to classify them as anything. I've always just called them progressive metal. But I think that's just for lack of lack of a better label. The yeah. The, the debut album is probably one of their weaker ones in terms of their entire catalogue. But that's mainly, yeah, just due to not quite finding the sound throughout the whole thing and having that production that just lets it down a bit. It's still an excellent album, and particularly now because you can pick it up with um, a lot of the collections of the the demos on the end of it. Getting stuff like World Unborn... Um, it's actually another weird case of that song being better than about half the stuff on this album. I'm not quite sure why they didn't decide to do it. Possibly because it's a bit too Sanctuary-esque. <laughs>
so Nevermore will move on very quickly from this debut album, uh, putting out the In Memory EP, joining up with additional guitarist Pat O'Brien before he'd later go on to join Cannibal Corpse. Um, I think many of the members of Nevermore have said since he's like one of the best guitarists they've ever worked with, and if you've ever seen him live with Cannibal Corpse, he is unquestionably an absolutely brilliant player. So good at the fast end of stuff. Uh, In Memory is an EP. It's quite an interesting one. It's... Uh, over 25 minutes long, five tracks, one of which is like a Bauhaus double cover, which more of, I'm pretty certain this is going to be Warhol's influence again. We get the track Martricide, which is a redoing of a track from the original Utopia demo. Um, and a really good song, actually. I'd never know why this one didn't make it to the first album. Real highlight of this album is the seven-minute track in the middle, the title track of this album, In Memory, which is a kind of thing uh, Nevermore do a lot with the song that starts very gentle and ends up getting a lot more extreme. It showcases a lot of like the great vocal melody from Warldane, some amazing um, guitar work from Jeff towards the end of the track. It's, yeah, just like this is one that I kind of feel sad it never made it to an album because I think if it had, it would have been more of a staple of their catalogue. It's that interesting thing when a band puts out an EP directly after their debut, uh, it often kind of gets forgotten their their catalogue. But yeah, overall, I, I think this is this is a pretty great one, and the timing when the next album comes out probably explains this. But it always feels a bit odd that this wasn't an album, like. The, the production and the whole sound of it is a massive step up from the first one. Um, and yeah, they only needed like another three songs and this would be a solid album. But yeah, for whatever reason, In Memory was left as this kind of, this short EP. And the band like almost immediately move on to release Politics of Ecstasy in the same year. So they've put out in a two year period, two albums and an EP, like somewhere in the realm of almost two hours of music, which in this kind of structure is pretty incredible. And Politics of Ecstasy just sees everything stepped up. So this is the third and final album they'd be doing with Neil Kernan. Uh, we still have Pat O'Brien as the fifth member of the band. Van Williams is settled in as the permanent drummer at this point. And it just starts punishingly and remains pretty in your face throughout it has such a good start to an album with seven tongues of god followed by this sacrament and then the single next in line seven tongues of god is a real like raging thrash influenced song with like just huge hefty riffing at like this is where we see the kind of the rhythm section of this band showcase so well that kind of excellently played guitars bass and drums just punishing throughout with ordained offering the kind of the melody and like escape from the the pummeling you get from the rest of them Warden's really exercising himself like vocally here as well the, the the kind of lyrical arrangements he's come up with for these songs are really interesting seven tongues of god has some fantastic stuff going in and on the chorus actually particularly next in line is a great showcase for him because that song the riff is just like this quite simplistic chug throughout the like the most of it so it's his vocals actually really doing the technical thing in this Again, it has a bit of a problem similar to the um, to the debut, where a lot of the middle of the album is a bit forgettable. 
But what they do that really works well on this one is closing strong with the the longest song I think uh, this band have ever put out, The Learning, at almost 10 minutes long. And it starts showing off the, the, like some of their weird and lyrical themes. The Learning is all about um, the possibility of machines gaining sentience, which would be a theme they'd, they'd revisit throughout their career. Also, this track has some of like my favourite uh, Jeff Loomis doing super melodic guitar work. Well, I assume it's Jeff Loomis, I don't know where... I'm not used to Pat O'Brien doing uh, really melodic solos, but could have been either of them. Um, yeah, it's just fantastic build-up, this track. Overall, Politics of XC is a really decent album, but it still has that edge of... I don't know if Neil Kernan was ever right for their sound. Like Their later albums would start having like a, a kind of tone to them that fit a bit more. Possibly it's just a product of the time as well. You've got to remember, we're still in 1996... The, the, we're just out of the grunge era, just moving into the new metal era. I don't know that many studios are ready for this this kind of sound yet. I'd say at this stage we're still not into the real greats of Nevermore's career, but considering this is an album that came out in 1996, this is certainly a very interesting product of the time. Nevermore will then make an interesting move with their third album, uh, Dreaming Neon Black. This album feels like a far more Warl Dane-influenced album. So, uh, Paso Brian has left the band at this point, and they're joined by Tim Calvert uh, of Forbidden on second guitar. 
But what really stands out about this album, and possibly that has some influence on it, is this kind of direction change to a far more introspective, melancholy... This album is, like, by far and away the most subtle Nevermore album. Like, there is some big catchy choruses, there is some flashy bits of lead guitar, but everything about it feels that bit more muted. That, And it, it's a far more despairing album. It's the one of all of theirs, actually. It took me longest to get my head around. And I'm still not sure it's one of my favourites. But Wardane's uh, stated many times that he thinks it's the best they put out. It's interesting in that it's 13 tracks long, which for an album of this style is a, a very odd choice. Like, well over an hour in runtime. But it does have some very strong moments on it. And there are still properly heavy bits. Tracks like I Am The Dog or Deconstruction have a real like weight to them a particular favorite actually for me is the title track dreaming neon black which i think is some of world dane's best vocal work this is actually quite an interesting one because he really puts his vocals like all over the place where the, he just is not putting lines of melody in any place you'd expect on this song things are just very just choosing not the obvious bit to emphasise. I believe, as well, he said the whole album's a, a concept, but I've never quite been able to follow that through lyrically. But there's certainly a huge amount of really interesting stuff happening on this album lyrically. Like, individual tracks have some great moments on them, Dreaming Me in Black particularly. Deconstruction goes a bit um, down the anti-Christian route in a kind of boring way. But there, there are other moments that I think really showcase that stuff quite well. Overall, though, I just think it's that, that slight muted nature to the production leaves me a little cold with this one. It, it'll never be one I kind of understand as much as some of the others around it. Also, I should mention uh, there's another guest performance on this by vocalist Christina Rhodes, who would be kind of very tied to Nevermore related bands throughout her career like she she did guest vocals on the first album I forgot to mention them and on this she does a cool like duet thing in Dreaming Neon Black with with Warrell Dane and later she would be on uh, Jeff Loomis's second solo album Planes of Oblivion adding vocals to some of those tracks I think made them some of the best he's ever put out in his solo albums but yeah so those are well worth checking out as well but yeah she, she adds a really nice little dynamic on here Again, I think it's one, if you're really into the World Dane side of Nevermore, this album's definitely worth spending time with, but it is more of a slow burn than a lot of their others. I wait for you You know you cannot hide Division from within Invalidates suffering
also always a band to keep moving on quickly. Their next album, Dead Heart in a Dead World, would come out in 2000, uh, like just a year after the previous one. Uh, they're back to a four-piece for this album, and I should say, at this point, the core of Nevermore solidified and would do for the rest of their career with Van Williams on drums, Jim Shepard bass, uh, Jeff Loomis and uh, Warrell Dane. With this album, though, they've switched to a new producer-slash-engineer, Andy Sneap, uh, so... Yes, yes, another UK producer. Both, uh, yeah, this this album was recorded out at uh, Andy Sneap's farmhouse in the countryside, I believe. And for me, this is finally where Nevermore found the right tone for their albums. This one sounds big in exactly the way it should. Like, just from the get-go, Dead Heart in a Dead World just hits hard. The opener, Narcosynthesis, is one of the true greats of their career is just pummeling. The solos are are just brilliant, just like absolute Jeff Loomis magic. the The vocals are interesting and complex throughout, and this would only be accentuated on the next track, "We Get Integrate," where everything goes a bit odd. There's loads of interesting kind of um, Eastern melodies in this over this still very complex. Uh, tech metal and yeah actually the band have really hit the stride with marrying like melody and technical riffing on these two particularly the next track inside four walls feels like the big possible single of the album with its massive uh chugging intro riff big chorus hook and this political message about the kind of over punishment of drug use in america just a really decent track and one of the first things that really sold me on Nevermore when I when I came across them a couple of years later. Then moving on to Evolution 169 we get some more of the dreaming neon black kind of elements of a, a slower more introspective track. Uh, one where Wardane actually uses utilizes like the low end of his vocals very well. It's something I haven't really got into here because especially with the earlier material we've been talking about how high in falsetto this guy can get. He has an amazing low range as well, which is particularly interesting. Um, so I've read that he was operatically trained, but then what he was doing for bands like Nevermore was very much not opera. He um, certainly had an interesting and unique style, and it did seem to utilise being able to go from these massive highs to, like quite low stuff like these proper kind of like goth vocals in places particularly shown on this track and actually dreaming neon black the the title track has a bit of that in places that kind of range really keeps things interesting and means he has a lot of options when he's having to cope with getting around jeff's complex riffing and uh van williams and uh jim shepherd's like interesting use of timing throughout trying to find that melody in there must be helped by having a lot of options of what he can do the river dragon continues in similar styles the opening two tracks with just immense guitar work again like this this feels like an album where jeff is really coming to the fore like the solos on this album are a really memorable part of it then we get the big melodic ballad of the heart collector which is just a band doing a ballad right it's it's still got groove, it's still got a hell of a lot of like heft in the right places, especially doing that outro where it sort of ends and then just comes back with a big headbangy riff, but still has a lot of subtle um, kind of 
tear-inducing melodies in the in the verses, which go far more mellow and more bass guitar-driven, actually, some quite nice melodic bass playing, kind of leading those parts, and then into the big, heavy chorus. Great solos, both at the start of the song and in the, the kind of middle eight section. Just really well done. Now, the issue of this album is, I've talked about those first six tracks because I fucking love them, I've listened to them, you know, hundreds of times now. But I must say, I nearly always turn the album off at this point. Those six tracks, absolutely amazing. But after that, it's for my money, it sort of just tails off. Although I know some people are quite into what happens later. But Engines of Hate goes a bit to just... It's still techy and interesting in that sense, but it's just not particularly memorable. Then we get the really odd Sound of Silence cover, where it's a cover of Simon Garfunkel's classic The Sound of Silence. But... Like the whole the the musical part of that is completely made up. It's like a different song that they've put Simon and Garfunkel's lyrics over the top of. Like, cause even the vocal melodies are quite different. Like, still got kind of the chorus hook. I'm not sure how I feel about that as an idea. It it's kind of interesting, I guess. As well as it, how I feel about that as an idea doesn't really matter because I just don't think Nevermore quite stuck the landing on this one. I am I'm not quite sure what they were trying, but for me it doesn't quite work. And then with Insignificant and Believe in Nothing, they just go way too melodic. Like, Believe in Nothing is so syrupy. And I wonder how much this is record label Century Media's meddling. Because this is also the track they put out as the video for the album, where like Inside Four Walls or The Heart Collector would have been such an obvious single. But they went for this kind of forgettable ballad instead. And it's got a really, like odd choice of a music video as well like i i am i'm totally baffled by why this song was something that got pushed the the title track at the end does bring things back really well actually and that that is kind of quite a solid song interestingly no real lead guitar in it which for nevermore always feels like an odd choice but overall like dead heart in a dead world is still totally worth buying i mean it's more than half an hour before it gets to anything that I'm not into, and that alone is is well worth the entry price of this album. And I do still think this stands up as one of their really strong ones, particularly because they just got that guitar tone so right.
So something a bit weird happens with their next album, 2003's Enemies of Reality. Now I could be wrong on this, but I think there's two versions of this album. There, So it was uh, produced and engineered and mixed by Kelly Gray rather than Andy Sneap, probably due to scheduling conflicts or something like that at the time. But the original mix of it, I think, is something the band like absolutely hated. And two years later, they put out an Andy Sneap uh, remix of the album with like a kind of um, inverted colours version of the front cover of this like weird jester mask full of worms. Um, the, the thing is, even with the remix, this album sounds horrible. They just, some, after getting it so right in Dead Heart and a Dead World, something went really wrong with how this album sounds. It like sounds like a demo. It doesn't sound particularly fresh. Like, it doesn't sound like a step up from the previous album. The thing they did with this album that is quite interesting, and I'm glad they tried it on one of their albums, is they turned the technicality, the kind of the Jeff Loomis shredding madness up to 11. Like, right from the get-go, the, the opener, uh, Enemies of Reality, is just an absolute face melter. It is so so ridiculously quick with its multiple guitar solos the main riffing is ludicrous and like van williams and jim shepherd should be complimented for just keeping up with this like if you look at what the baseline has to do to and jim shepherd does this neatly live as well he keeps up with those guitars and the riffing almost note for note so they are all playing so ridiculously fast honestly this is more or less a tech death album but with oral bane put over the top of it and that's kind of where the issues come in because this is the most where you can hear Warldane straightening to wrestle melodies out of a song particularly if you look at the second single for this album i voyager the chorus is great and really works but he's had to do something so odd to find a melody line that fits over all the stuff um jeff is doing and what's great and what i really love about Warldane and like the sheer ambition the guy had is while doing that he's not made his life easy again he's gone for these complex weird lyrical themes um i voyager all about some like kind of celestial being witnessing our world in its travels um enemies of reality again just like a, a very strange choice conceptually there are some more melodic uh, elements to this album particularly the track tomorrow turned into yesterday it definitely sits as closer to what i'd see as nevermore's more traditional style but really what's great about enemies of reality is it's given us the title track enemies of reality to be part of their live set so i was lucky enough to see nevermore twice live um, before they before they disbanded, and this track was in their set both times, and my god, is it good live? It's so so damn intense. And actually, like the album, might, despite its flaws in production, it's definitely well worth picking up and giving a go. There's some really interesting stuff in there. Again, it's one I I probably blame Century Media for it because they should have just waited and got the Mandy Sneep again. He did them such a good job the last time. I think is maybe has this been caught with a producer who, you know, had worked with them before, it could have been a really great one. As it stands, still an interesting moment with their catalogue and got some really good stuff in it.
so this brings us to 2005's This Godless Endeavour. This is the album that got me into Nevermore. This is the reason I'm obsessed with Warordain as a vocalist. It sees the band team up with uh, additional guitarist Steve Smith and get back in studio again with Andy Sneap. And this one, like, Andy Sneap nails it and gets Nevermore, the sound they sort of always deserved. And just everything goes right on this album. This album is easily the masterpiece not only of this band but of any band member they've had this i cannot see any of them topping it with anything they sort of have done before or since as brilliant as a lot of what jeff and warren will go on to do later and what what say like warren jim achieved for sanctuary beforehand this album is just nails it start to finish it's absolutely brilliant um it starts off in such furious fashion actually it really picks up a lot of what the first half in dead heart in a dead world does right but just turn it all up to 11 born comes in with just face melting riff after face melting riff it takes so like there's so much shredding and mind-blowing stuff happens before we get anywhere near the massive memorable chorus Wardane's like early vocals in this song are so harsh like they verge on proper like screaming rather than singing but then come in with massive melody for the chorus over finding a great melody line as well to put over uh, Jeff or Steve's um, incredible, like, constant sweeping riffing. The solo in this song actually really short and sweet, but just, like, just utterly amazing. Um, then we get Final Product, which is just kind of more of the same idea, but for a more lead guitar focus with, like, a, a massive tapping section in the middle to sort of break things up with something a bit more interesting. But then things slow down a bit for my acid words. You get a more catchy number there. But with some, like, interesting kind of quite dark, almost, like, sort of doomy riffing either side of, like, the big chorus with, again, yet another just absolutely ludicrous bit of guitaring. I don't know whether Jeff suddenly improved as a guitarist on this album or if he'd just been holding back before, but... The guitaring on display in this is just ridiculous start to finish. Um, something I hadn't really mentioned before as well, which really helps this album out, and, and ones before as well, is Van Williams' drum performance. Van Williams is a guy who sounds like he just hits the kit really, really hard. So his kind of signature style is doing kind of a lot more slower kind of tom and snare work with the still like really super fast double kicks. So... The double kicks will be going quite solidly for any given song, but the snare and that will be just leading the groove rather than going for like the more extreme blasty death metal stuff. But like, yeah, when he hits the snare, it just sounds like that kind of absolute explosion, like, and really keeps like a groove to everything that you can follow as a listener throughout. As we get to the middle of the album, though, we get the similar thing to having Heart Collector and Dead Heart in a Dead World of just having a very melodic different track. Uh, in this case, it's Sentient Six, the spiritual successor to The Learning back on Politics of Ecstasy, another song about a, a robot gaining sentience and, like, leading to eventual, like, rebellion. And this this song shows off the absolute pinnacle of what World Dane can do as a vocalist. Very complex melodies, bizarrely complex, like, lyrics in it, but all 
with real like heart-wrenching emotion in it on, on a subject that's very like sci-fi to pull all that together in one song is absolutely amazing and it's got a lot of uh, like kind of piano over the top of it so it feels very melodic which is amazing when it gives way to the the actually does the heart collector thing again uh of having a sudden heavy ending like a really apocalyptic end to the song where the first half is the robot gaining sentience and so on and then this final sort of minute is like the enslavement of the human race put through this really great slowly building chugging riff and it has like an amazing bit of like sweeping Jeff Loomis solo just sort of hidden in the background of the mix for the more uh, the more dedicated listener to find but this is where this album just beats um, Dead Heart and a Dead World for me on every level is the second half still keeps things fascinating uh, we get the instrumental Holocaust of Fort which has <laughs> I don't know whether Warren was being a bit rude with this or what but he says it's one of his favourite solos the band's ever done um, a guest solo by James Murphy over it who I just happened to be recording in the studio with them at the time apparently Jim Shepard had written this this little instrumental and him and uh, him and James just sat up all night trying to get this this like cool melodic lead over it so Warren was woken up the crack of dawn with like oh come look what we've done and it, yeah is it amazing little track to play break up the flow we get a real like heart-wrenching one with sell my heart for stones and then psalm of lydia just absolute explosion of like ridiculous shred guitar fury throwing in as well like even like like before the song goes into its proper like lead guitar duel this really cool like acoustic guitar moment um, a Future Uncertain is really interesting. It's a, a redoing of World Unborn from the uh, original demo. Whereas World Unborn feels quite in the sanctuary mould, they really evolve and flesh out that idea with A Future Uncertain. It's a very interesting track. It does a lot in its kind of six minutes. And then we get one of my all-time favourites of this band, the title track, This Godless Endeavour. Uh, the nine-minute closing epic, uh, a song that never repeats itself. It just, from its melodic beginnings, it just builds and builds, getting heavier, more punishing, more complex, like, lyrical stuff thrown over the top. The real memorable moment is the the big guitar lead about six minutes in that just kind of repeats and harmonises and gets more complex for like a further about two minutes. And Warren's like still finding place to put an interesting vocal melody over all of this. And then the, the song, rather than like fading out or anything like that, just comes to a massive crescendo with Warren hitting some of the highest notes he's hit in, in a very long time just to close the album as a whole it just works so well the production is perfect it's got enough nastiness and bite in the guitar tone that it it still feels quite brutal and in your face but everything's just clear enough the drums and bass sound massive on it it, yeah, it, it's just a really good sound for this band. I don't know if it's something that maybe works very well just because of Nev Nevermore are what they are, but yeah, every instrument on this sounds really full and clear, but still like gels together amazingly in tracks like Born. Like the the chaos never overwhelms it. I, I think honestly, this is just Andy Sneap being extremely good at what he does. I think a lesser producer would have real a real hard time making a mix like this and 
yeah, he, he's done a fantastic job capturing Nevermore here. I think possibly Enemies of Reality could have hit like this album if it had, had someone who knew how to work with it. I don't know how Andy Sneap's influence might have persuaded the band to you know go go as brave and complex as they did for us arm but yeah in its in its almost hour-long runtime i don't think it has a bad minute on it. it for me it's still an absolute classic of that kind of early 2000s progressive extreme metal sound and yeah i'd highly advise if you've never given nevermore a go this is the definite start point buy this album i really don't think you'll regret it i still think it holds up you know 15 years past its original release I am sentient number six I stand in line I am the prototype I convenience for mankind Superior is digital So around this time, they also put out a split um, EP with Arch Enemy, which should certainly be a sign for things to come, um, of Jeff later joining that band uh, to replace um, Chris Amott, or actually whoever was in the band after Chris Amott. Um, and Nevermore then went on some extensive touring. It'd be another five years until their their next album, touring with, with Arch Enemy as well as many other bands. And I think this is a part of time where they'd really come into their own sort of 2000 through 2010 they actually started becoming quite a well-known band i mean i certainly remember seeing them getting a lot of um attention at the time and it feels like after enemies reality century media really started backing them again and sort of 
pushing them out there and getting them good tours, getting them in the studio with the right people, etc., etc. Of this period, obviously, you're not going to be able to see them live now. Um, so it's really nice that they did actually go to the effort and make a full live DVD. So uh, in 2008, we get the year of the Voyager, which is a really good live DVD. Um, it's two hours long. Like the, the show that's recorded is two hours long um, and features at least one track off every studio, proper studio release they did. Even uh, We even get Martricide off of... Um, in memory, which is really cool. The, the the track listing for me is near perfect. Like, yeah, it's some of my favourites of pretty much everything they put out with a heavy focus on uh, this godless endeavour and uh, Dead Heart and a Dead World. Even really cool stuff like putting the learning and Sentient Six back to back in it. The film is fantastic. It's lots of multiple camera angles, lots of, like... Yeah, I wonder if this was one of those ones where they filmed two shows and have sort of mixed them together. I don't know how much overdubbing is in there. I don't know how kind of fakes it is with these things. It's always hard to tell. But having seen Nevermore Live myself, I can say they always seem to be able to pull it off. So the sheer scale of like technicality in this might not be remotely unreasonable. At this stage, the uh, band had picked up Chris Broderick, who would um, later join Megadeth and previously was in uh, Jag Panzer, absolutely brilliant guitarist. And him and Jeff work so well together on this. Like, there's some ridiculous stuff in there. Like during Enemies of Reality, they they play one of the solos, like really shreddy solos, completely harmonised. World Dane's vocal performance on it sounds absolutely incredible for a, for a guy doing a two-hour-long set, which is pretty vocal-heavy throughout. I mean, Nevermore have never been a band to have hugely long instrumental sections. He seems to be able to belt it out from start to finish without any real issue, like never sounding particularly out of tune or in trouble. And the audience is really into it. It does have a slight pervy cameraman problem where there seems to be way too many cuts to like the all the hot women in the audience, but... <laughs> whatever like <laughs> that's more of a choice to by whoever edited it they, yeah as i say absolutely amazing and it's got a really um really decent bonus disc as well where they've they've put in free other film shows so like just such a huge collection of live stuff so if you're a big fan of this band and never got to see them live highly recommend pick up year of the voyager they're just a really really decent live dvd so I think at this point in time, we're starting to see a little bit of internal strife in the band. Both Ordain and Jeff Loomis go out to put uh, go out and put out some solo albums, and they're, they're kind of like polar opposite things. Jeff Loomis puts out a full instrumental album, Zero Order Phase, which is interesting, but it is entirely um, like crazy shreddy lead guitar stuff. Um, Interesting enough, uh, with Mark Arrington on drums for it. But yeah, it's, it's entirely instrumental shred guitar. And while it has great moments and some really interesting melodic stuff in there, I find it a bit boring on the whole. Um, but yeah, if, if he's what you really love about uh, Nevermore, this might be right up your street. Warldane goes the opposite direction and puts out a very kind of heavy metal slash hard rock album with a very star-studded lineup. Um, Peter Witches joins them from Soil Work on not only guitar but also production, recording, mixing, and engineering. And we get Dirk Van Bulen on drums for it. So 
you would be forgiven for expecting something a bit more complex than what we actually get here. Praises to the War Machine, I always found a slightly disappointing album in many ways. Like I like a, a lot of what he tried to do with it, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't hit right. The first three tracks, When We Pray, Messenger and Obey, all feel like he's gone for a very, like, Nevermore, kind of Dead Heart and Dead World era um, vocal approach. But the riffing is just quite traditional heavy metal. It just feels like it's lacking something. Track four is a cover of Lucretia, My Reflection by Sisters of Mercy, which feels like something Warordain should be able to do an amazing job of, but just doesn't hit right. Like, I think it's like the bass is kind of buried in the mix, and that's such a bass guitar-driven song. Although the bass line is incredibly simple, it's critical to the melody of it, and losing that just means the song just loses its edge. Warordain's vocal delivery on it I really like. It picks up a bit after that. We've let you down in August. We get some incredible kind of melodic, sad moments. Um, and the, these are the things that he really brings well on this album. The, the kind of the more melancholy kind of personal songs. This is particularly showcased in in Brother. His kind of weird, tortured tribute to... Um, to his actual dead brother. So, Waldane was the youngest of five siblings with an older brother who he didn't wasn't like as close with, and and three three sisters are all older than him as well. Um, and his brother sadly like died of cancer. I think not long before this, and this is his sort of weird tribute that way. This old man has you know similar leanings. It feels like another very personal story and i kind of like him going this person on the the lyrical stuff it's just in a lot of the other moments the music doesn't hit quite as well as it should um like the final track equilibrium equilibrium feels like it's really trying to be a nevermore song complete with getting jeff loomis back in for the uh the solo but it just doesn't quite have uh like the two guitarists on the album, I just don't think are able to recreate the riffing that that Jeff brought on those kind of later Nevermore albums, and for whatever reason, it just leaves this feeling a little bit empty. There's great moments. The day the rats went to war is probably one of the heavier tracks that works a bit better. Particularly, it's another James Murphy guitar solo, and it, that works really well. And as they let you down, I, I thought was very good, but overall, it just falls a bit flat it's it's a fun listen but for for my money i like i would never put this on over anything else warrodane's put out really it just yeah it was an interesting attempt but just didn't quite land right
So this brings us to 2010's The Obsidian Conspiracy, the final Nevermore album, seventh one they put out. Still with Century Media, same record label they were for their entire career. And sadly, I would say, considering its place in their history and so on, it's probably the weakest they ever put out. Um, and that's possibly being over harsh. Like, it's not a bad album in essence. It's just a really frustrating album. The first three tracks all do the same thing, where it's kind of sort of heavy, but not that heavy. Never quite lands the punch you want from the guitar work. Still a pretty kind of catchy chorus and so on, but nothing else about it is particularly memorable. The, the the production, all the edges of it are really softened. The guitars don't seem as heavy as they did on some of the other tracks, like in their their category, particularly like the last two albums. Like so much of this just doesn't land like you want it to. And what's interesting is watching the the DVD that comes along with the album. Is I think the problem is. Rather than recording with Andy Sneap, he mixed it and mastered it, but the production engineering was done by Peter Witches, who had just done Warrell Dane's previous album, and this has exactly the same problem. He very much is said to have talked the band into, oh no, get to the chorus quicker, do more hooks, less technical kind of noodling, and what happens is... All the songs feel like this massively watered-down version of what was possible on the previous album, where, like, say, Born has way too many riffs, and it works because of that. Something like um, uh, Your Poison Throne, or the Terminal Proclamation, doesn't have enough, and it just gets to the chorus, and that's all the songs have is, like, a good chorus. Like, And the solos are shorter for that, and they just fall kind of flat and the whole album just sounds too bright too clean it has no real bite to it and it, this is the album where they really feel like your more traditional groove metal band this tracks really get away from that uh one that i used to hate when i first got it but now i think it's really good is and the maiden spoke which is all about a story of um Waldane thinking he was being haunted while staying at andy sneep's farm for recording one of the previous albums um and the vocal delivery on it is really, really weird. And the way like the the lyrics are set up is just putting stuff in really strange places again. And I think it's initially put me off, but actually now I feel it's one of the more ambitious moments of the album where they actually try something really interesting. Track five, The Emptiness Unobstructed, is where they go really mellow. And it works kind of well, but they've done it better before. And then a bit later we get stuff like... Uh, the Blue Marble and the New Soul and Without Morals, which just go back to the same problems we had with the latter half of Dead Heart and a Dead World, that kind of believe in nothing, just being a bit too syrupy. The album does close on an absolute stormer, though. The title track, The Obsidian Conspiracy, is it makes the album more frustrating, actually, because it's exactly what we got from a lot of those early tracks on the previous album. Storming kind of really fast guitar work it's bludgeoning heavy but with still great melodic moments it's exactly what you want for an evermore song and it just feels like there, there could have been so much more of this on this album like a lot of those riffs that may would that 
end up on the next uh, Jeff Loomis solo album, uh, Planes, is it Planes of Ruin? No, Zero Order Phase. Um, like, why were they there and not in this? It just feels like so many elements just didn't quite come together for it. And I don't know whether it's fair to blame Peter for that or maybe this was a you know, completely conscious choice the band wanted to try something like this. But for whatever reason, the album just... It falls really flat. It's one that's probably worth going back to for the odd track. As I say, the title track is really decent. An interesting trend with Nevermore. They're definitely a band where if you just they could do a set that would have been pretty good just playing all their title tracks. But yeah, like I I want to like it more than I do because it's their fate like their it's their final album, but it just doesn't work for me. And I guess it's the difficulty of trying to follow this godless endeavor personally i feel they could have just stuck to that formula and that would have worked really well for them but this is at least i guess a band trying to reinvent themselves and there there are some who think this album is really good so possibly it's just they moved in a direction that was was less for me really so off the back of this album they toured it fairly extensively i i, I saw them live um after this point, um, and they were sort of absolutely brilliant live band, um, but not that long after internal strife would get to them, the band seemed to really split into two factions with Jeff Loomis and um, and Van Williams going off and sort of going on to do more. To I think they did some more stuff together, but they they sort of certainly left the band sort of together, and Warrell Dane and Jim Shepard kind of kept it going briefly but eventually eventually called a day on it and actually both went on to rejoin uh, Sanctuary actually I think they also rejoined Sanctuary with Jeff Loomis very briefly who then then quit as Nevermore sort of fell apart so yeah Jeff would then obviously go on to more solo stuff more um and then joining Arch Enemy among many other things World Day and Jim Shepard, I believe, at this stage, I could be wrong on the timeline of this, uh, ended up opening an Italian restaurant together that lasted briefly. I don't know much about it other than that they did that.
what then happened is Sanctuary put out a, a new album in 2014, The Year the Sun Died, with both of them on it. I'm not going to go into this one in too much detail. It has that problem of Sanctuary do feel quite a band of their time. However, maybe like Refuge United is kind of a bit more timeless, but them trying to recapture it just didn't work for me. It's not it's not terrible by any means. It's it's a really competent album. I just found it a little bit bland. But not too long after that, um Jim would quit uh, Sanctuary. Worrell kept working on a studio album for his um his solo project. But and I'm not again, this is another thing I'm not quite sure the timeline on because I actually completely missed this final Worrell Dane album coming out. So, in 2017, Warrell Dane suffers a heart attack, I believe, while still on the road with Sanctuary, and tragically passes away. Um, sort of many of those around him were saying he had, he had issues with alcoholism to that time, which probably put him into worse health. But whatever, Ian, really, really sad. Like, he, yeah, he didn't survive touring with them, and yet, yeah, 2017, tragically passed away. But... There was, there's been one posthumous release from Moral Dane, um, and I'm not sure quite, yeah, as I said, I'm not quite sure the history of this, but uh, in 2018, Century Media Records puts out Shadow Work, his second solo album, and this, this album, I don't know whether it's a sort of like collection of what he had ready to go for the solo album put together, but it, it sounds it sounds basically like a completed album, if ever so slightly short at 40 minutes, like eight tracks long. So what's interesting about Shadow Work is um, Warl Dane uh, went in a completely sort of different direction with it. He um, actually, I've read in some interviews that he was very fond of Brazil and recorded this out there with a bunch of fairly unknown Brazilian musicians and like new Brazilian recording staff and everything. So it's a completely different band to what he was playing with on Praises to the War Machine. And thus the album is like sort of unrecognizable styling between the, like he, this and his other solo one. Um, it starts with a very odd intro of The Eternal Blessing, but then we get the, the first proper song, Madame Satan, which is, if anything, reminiscent of like... Devin Townsend stuff, like, he does a lot of really interesting vocal layering in this, like, using both the very high and very low register to make that, that chaotic thing you get on some of uh, Devin Townsend's more intense albums, and if a vocalist is going to try something like that, World Day is certainly the, the guy to go with. What works really well in this, though, is the guitarists in this are definitely, well... I, I think are going to be fans of Nevermore and are doing a lot of Jeff Loomis-isms. There's a lot more heavy down-tuned guitars. This is less like traditional heavy metal hard rock riffing and much more like verging on extreme metal riffing. There's loads of really cool, um, very technical bits of guitaring, like uh, even, even in choruses and so on, and not the obvious moment, much like how... You know, there's later Nevermore albums were structured. And when it gets to the guitar solo, it is like a real showstopper. Uh, Disconnection System continues in a very similar vein. And really, like, I think this, this track is the one that most feels like it could have been another Nevermore song. 
What also what's really nice from this album is when he goes to the big emotional moments like he did on the previous ones, the very personal stories, particularly in tracks like As Fast As The Others, there's still a lot of that heaviness and complexity. There's the, the you know, there's the still the big down-tuned guitars. There's still some really technical work from the drums and guitars on this. It's just fantastically put together. And I, it, in its 40-minute runtime, it really doesn't have a weak moment. There's the classic... Uh, slightly odd cover this time it's a cure song the hanging gardens that they kind of made a bit heavier personally i quite enjoy it but i'm not so familiar with the cure i don't know if this would be something that would drive cure fans up the wall or not but other than that there's still so much um excellent work in there uh mother is the word for god the big closer is particularly epic and what's so nice is this is something that you know really is a brilliant capstone on Borodane's legacy. Like, he is totally the centrepiece of this album. It wouldn't work with a different vocalist. His his lyrics and his vocal delivery throughout this is some of the best he's done. It, it, yeah, it's incredible vocal work. And it's so nice that he has this right at the end of his, his career because it just lands... Right, it, it what the previous like three albums he was involved with kind of missed. This just totally gets it, and it's interesting that that happens with a group of completely unrelated sort of musicians and studio guys. <laughs> Devon Townsend thing that that particular riff there really has like a deconstruction vibe which is interesting because Dove Van Buren was on deconstruction and one of uh, 
Ordain's previous albums. But yeah, like, so this is my little tribute to Ordain. I, I don't know if he's someone you were familiar with before or not. I feel Nevermore a band that you could have quite easily overlooked. Like, they, they did quite well for a period in the early 2000s, but they never really hit the mainstream in ways that, say, you know, like, uh, even a band like Arch Enemy did. Uh, but I, I think I always really respected them for having their their own sort of little niche in metal. Like, they were hard to classify by genre, and they were never a band that really um, had an obvious contemporary doing exactly the same thing. And I, I think a lot of Wardane's other work is well worth um, holding up there as well. Those early Sanctuary albums are brilliant, and particularly his final um, solo album, really great stuff. The guy has 13 albums in his legacy and numerous other sort of EPs and demos and, you know, and someone who will probably mostly be known for being a great live frontman. If you watch that Year of the Voyager DVD, he was always a guy very good at, like, inspiring a mosh bib, getting a crowd going wild, singing along and so on. Like, he he lost nothing live. And I always respect for being able to deal with being thrown such complex music and still finding the vocal hook in the, me- the middle of it and finding an interesting lyrical theme to throw at the top of it. He's always been someone who was just brilliant at uh, writing lyrics for his songs, even if maybe they didn't always hit as well as they could have. Like, the ambition was there, and I, that's what really sold it for me. I think he's a real a real loss for the metal scene. He died, like, very young. He was only about 56, um... And yeah, like I, I think he could have gone on to do a lot more stuff. I know, um, like Jeff Loomis has said in interviews, like there's lots of quotes going around, like "Oh, like Nevermore on the verge of reforming." I've seen interviews with Jeff Loomis have sort of clarified we were up for maybe doing like a live tour again. That we were never going to do another album. That sort of chapter was over. I think they'd had enough of a fallout that they were friends again, but they were never going to be able to go back into studio together after that point. And that's 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 fine. I think I think we will, I think we'll certainly see more from Van Williams and Jeff Loomis. Jim Shepard seems to have, for the time being, quit the music industry, which is a bit of a shame because the guy was an incredible bass player. But I think Warrodane has really, you know, left his stamp on metal. He is a truly unique vocalist, and for for my money, one of my favourite properly clean singers in extreme metal they get just absolutely brilliant voice so yeah as always uh get in touch with us if you if you've never really heard nevermore before and this is somewhat like intrigued you to check them out let us know if you you do go back and pick up any of their albums or if you're a nevermore fan and have come across sanctuary for the first time or you know if if you never got on with the style at all just you know Get in touch and let let me know let me know if this was of any interest to you. So as always, um, Twitter at Breakfast Metal, uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal at Facebook, and if you want to just send us like anything a longer form message, uh, get in touch via Gmail, uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal at gmail.com. Yeah, as always, thanks a lot for listening. To see the last To see their bastard sons against the wall. To feel the emptiness as we decay.
In a dead world! 